0: The second half of childhood, otherwise known as these teen and tween adolescent years, is really riddled with change, growth, letting go and holding on, and a lot of really big life decisions. And there are five very specific needs that every person has. And during these massive transition teen years, which, by the way, are also massive brain development years, uh, these needs are really screaming to be met, but most do not even know that they have them. So unfortunately, the result is that a lot of our youth are chasing their worth in many ways that are not going to serve them. The person that gives them attention, finally, they start chasing our popularity, the grades, the people-pleasing, the chameleon identity that shifts between crowds, perfectionism you get the point. So these five needs are mapped out and you are given four simple ways to fill them just at home in the five needs guides I put together for you. So just go to nellyharden.com slash five needs. Now that's the number five and then needs all lowercase and download today. So you can start to see what your child looks like when they get to walk in a truer, more assured version of themselves when these needs are being Met. So that again is com slash five needs. Go download today. Hello and welcome to the 6570 Family Project Podcast. If you are a parent of a tween, teen, or somewhere on the way, this is exactly the place for you. This is the playground for parents who want to raise their kids with intention, strength, and joy come and hear all the discussions, get all the tactics and have lots of laughs along the way. We will dive into the real challenges in raising kids today, how to show up as parents and teach your kids how to show up as members of the family and individuals of the world. My name is Nellie Hardin, big city girl turned small town, sip an iced tea on the front porch mama, who loves igniting transformation in the hearts and minds of families by helping them build self-led discipline and leadership that elevates the family experience and sets the kids up with a rock solid foundation they can launch their life on all before they ever leave home. This is the 6570 Family Project, let's go. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the 6570 Family Project podcast, where we are putting aside the power struggles and finding the path to lead our young women toward the confidence, respect, and wisdom they need to prepare them for the world. And today we have a very special guest on, Dr. Sarah Bren. She is a licensed clinical psychologist, a mom of two uh, who are almost three and four years old. Uh, Her passion is helping parents find their inner confidence and raise healthy resilient kids and we are really going to dive into what resilience is what it looks like and how to help them build that in this episode Not only are we going to do that, we are going to draw the parallels of basic brain chemistry, which will help your understanding as a toddler or teen parent, um, understanding what is actually going on in those little amazing brains that they have or not so little amazing brains that they have. Uh, she is the um, founder of the digital course, The Authentic Parent, Finding Your Confidence in Parenthood, and the co-founder of Upshur Bren Psychology Group in Pelham, New York, where she treats parents, children, and families. I hope you can join me in welcoming Dr. Sarah Bryn. Okay, everyone. I am so excited to have Dr. Bren on here today. You guys, she is such a treasure and you are going to love every word that she says. And we're going to just be pouring out some parenting gold today as we do here on the 6570 Family Project podcast. And I'm just so excited to have you with us, Dr. Bren.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here.
0: Oh, thank you. Um, Okay. Well, I want to get into the nitty gritty of all of this and it always starts with a story. So can you share with us just your story? How did you become a clinical psychologist that helps parents find their inner confidence? Love that by the way, and raise healthy, resilient kids. How did you get to this place? Yeah. I mean, Kind of indirectly. Um, like I
1: was, I was, I mean, I always knew I was going to be a psychologist. I went to graduate school for psychology. That was the plan. Right. Um, but my work as a psychologist really started out working with adults. I, I did a lot of work with adults with chronic childhood trauma, Mm -hmm. a lot of attachment, uh, repair work, people who, um, really struggled in adulthood to feel secure in themselves and in their relationships, um, very dysregulated experiences in life, you know, highly volatile. And I was doing a lot of work in that population, loving it, had kids, started, you know, ha- started growing my family. I had my son and my son went to a daycare in Manhattan that was RIE-informed, which RIE stands for resources for RIE, resources for infant educators. <laughs> Which <laughs> is a funny name, but it's it's a it's like a parenting philosophy that I'm I've since become very enamored with. But ultimately, the sort of core of Rye is that you know we look at children as these whole individuals from birth with these mm-hmm. their own sort of needs and perspectives, and and a lot of the work that we do in that parenting philosophy is like supporting their sense of self and their secure relationship with the parent. And I was like, wow, this is so. Between Rye and just wanting to like knowing what I know about attachment security and wanting to create this really secure relationship with my children, I was like, wow, parenting and the way I've been approaching parenting kind of has similar threads to what I do in therapy with these individuals who have such severe attachment ruptures in their life and such insecure attachment patterns and the repair work that we do is a has a lot of parallels to the, you know, parenting a person who doesn't have attachment struggles. And I was like, you know, it kind of clicked for me. I was like, if I could help parents understand these fundamental uh, ways of, you know, the, the fundamental ideas behind secure attachment, how to develop resilient children, you know, how to support resiliency in child development, how to use the parent child relationship as the vehicle by which you parent, mm-hmm. um, rather than like all these behavioral manipulation strategies, like then I would likely be helping parents to raise children who in their 30 and 40 might not need me as a therapist. Right? I was like, let's like, and so I was just kind of like, I don't know. I just wanted to like kind of reverse engineer the work I was doing and start at the core, which I really feel like starts in the home with families and helping families, helping parents feel healthy I also feel like there's so much parenting stuff out there that makes parents feel less healthy, Mm -hmm. like increases shame, increases anxiety. And I, and as a therapist who treats adults and mothers and parents, I was like, I don't, I need to figure out a way to teach parents about child development and, you know, attachment health while also holding space for their mental health. Right. And finding kind of bridging that gap. Cause I, that's a thing. That's a big gap that does, I feel like exist in a lot of the parenting stuff out there. Cause um, so yeah, that's kind of how I started. And I started, you know, doing more parenting support in my therapy. I was working much with money, more parents. Now I almost exclusively, not exclusively, I still see quite a quite quite a range, but I see a lot of parents in my practice and, and I have like it like parent education courses on helping that like just build that knowledge. So that's yeah, I pivoted and I'm so glad I did.
0: Yeah, I I'm, I'm right there with you. I pivoted too and it was it was out of realizations in my own family and my entire life. I have learned and taught and learned and taught and learned, you know, and, and that's where my, all of my pivots have come from. But, um, for all the listeners, I do have to say my voice is off because I lost my voice, um, uh, on roller coasters with my girls this past weekend. So if you're like, Oh no, she's sick. I promise I'm not sick. I just screamed a lot, dropping 325 feet in the air. Oh so that's good. a really good reason <laughs> to have lost your voice. How fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of my daughters, I was sitting next to, uh she looked at me, she's like, Mom, you didn't like roller coaster scream, you like death screamed. And it's like, <laughs> I said it's because I thought I was going to die, but it's fine. Let's do it again. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay. So I just had to uh, say that aside, but I was just, um, doing a, uh, talk yesterday and talking about how, when my oldest who just turned 17 gasped, um, so, uh, she just turned 17, but when she was two, I remember having this conversation with somebody that I had met. We were on a walk and I don't know, it was another parent we had just met. And I said something to my daughter, I don't even remember what it was, but it caught this other person, um, off guard. And she was like, oh, you talk to her a little bit differently. And I was like, what? And, uh, and we got into this conversation and I told her, well, she, she's an adult in the making. And I've, I've just always seen her as her own person and this, you know, her own, uh, birth story of this adult that she's going to be someday. And so, I don't know when you were talking about Rye, it just kind of reminded me of that conversation that I had of mm-hmm. always looking at her and all of my children as these little individuals that we get the pleasure and great responsibility of raising and being the architects of their beginning. So yes. anyway, yeah. Yes. Um, uh, but, I love where you've come. And I love, love, love the work that you do. Um, I think it is, I I agree that uh, having the work in the home is the best way to change not only their future, but honestly, the entire world's future as a collaboration of what's happening in the homes today. So you mentioned in there, Resilience a few times, and mm-hmm. resilience is a core um, pillar of the work that I do as well. in um, I work with parents that have young women in the second half of childhood. and mm-hmm. that's really where I focus my energies. But resilience is obviously a big piece of that. So I would love you I would love to know what does resilience mean to you in your practice, and what are some of the the ways that you help this be instilled in the bedrock of these children's childhood and subsequent lives?
1: Yes. Well, I think one of the things that I do with, with parents and with families and with kids is, is help people realize that resilience is not like this innate inborn thing. Like, I think that's a myth that people have about resilience. Like some yes. people are resilient and some people aren't. Mm-hmm. And that if we start to think about resilience as a series of skills, That and almost kind of like musculature that we have to exercise. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, built up around distress, tolerance, frustration, tolerance, the capacity to keep going when things are hard to, you know, resist the urge to quit (laughs) Also, to give ourselves permission to quit mm-hmm. when we don't, when you know, honoring our truth, being able to be tuned into that internal experience like these are all things that it's almost like, yeah, those are all the muscles. And when you strengthen all those muscles by practice and, you know, having an environment that supports that musculature, then that all kind of comes together to create this package of resilience. And, you know, resilience requires a lot of flexibility. It requires a lot of self-compassion. It requires a lot of mindfulness. And so it's not just one thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that also helps us to realize there's a lot of things we're probably already doing that support our own resilience as parents and our children's resilience as parents. And just logging a lot of that stuff helps us to say, oh, me, maybe I am more resilient than I (laughs) realized. Like, and then- when we see ourselves as resilient, it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If I think about myself or if my child thinks about themselves as a resilient human being, when faced with a situation where we have to use those muscles, we're going to have a lot of confidence that we can
0: do that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And so uh, when I start working with families, one, uh, I there's this very large questionnaire that they fill out so I can really get um into uh their family but one of them is talking about and having the parents understand what have you gotten through in your life, right? What have you been through? Not that's, you know, killed you and brought you down because you're still here, but what have you really walked through? And it is very eye-opening to have those conversations with adults because they're like, oh, you know, it's been okay. Well, actually there was this one time I I got through that. That was really hard. And I I got through this and that that was really hard. I mean, Mm -hmm. pregnancy itself or adoption itself or what have you, like that is really hard stuff to get through, but you did. Right. And so bringing that, bringing that confidence to the surface, because the world is quick to push it down. But you said something in the beginning that I wanted to kind of reflect on because I run into this a lot since I work with helping, um, Hel- helping families get to a point that their daughters and themselves are in a self-disciplined leadership posi- position before they leave home, and leadership like resilience is one of those things that so many people say, "Oh, mm. born leader, not a born leader," you know, mm. or "born leader, born follower," right? Which is mm. even more uh, diminutive. So, anyway, uh, I I see this a lot, and helping people realize that, yeah you actually have a lot of this in you. Oh, it's so encouraging. And it just puts a fire in them that, oh, I can. And when you have confidence, you're so much more capable of everything that you want to do. So I love yes. I love that you brought that up. And it goes with, because I, I work a lot in vision, right? Uh, like uh, forming core beliefs, forming core values. Um, and then also vulnerability is another one. I'm not vulnerable. I'm not vulnerable at all, right? Mm -hmm. And I was working with a dad recently and um, he was, he's like, yeah, I I don't do that girl stuff. I don't do, Mm -hmm. you know, and I was like, that's okay. Have you ever told your daughter? I don't know what to do here. So can you help me help you? And he's like, no. And I was like, well that might be a really good thing. Just like, just being vulnerable that you are not vulnerable, right? In his eyes. And just having that raw conversation with your daughter and just, I believe in you and I want to help you, but I have no idea how, can you help me with that? So powerful to that child. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yes,
0: I love that. And I think that that idea that like, you know,
1: sometimes we have to break through when we're working with families or parents or individuals, like we have to break through that, like, belief that I'm not that thing or I can't do that thing. And usually I think one of the ways I help people break through that belief is to sort of find the roots of that belief. Mm. Right. Like you learned that somewhere. Where did mm-hmm. you learn that? Where did, was that something that was explicitly told to you when you were growing up? Like, you know, big boy boy. Boys don't cry. So stuff it down. Like, I don't right. want to hear that stuff, right? And so you internalize that and you start to grow up as a human being. That's like, I don't do that girly stuff, right? That's not me. Is that rooted in maybe an implicit communication, right? You had a parent who either was incredibly emotionally volatile and you were like, I I just can't be like that. So I don't, I'm gonna go the whole opposite direction because that's too scary. Or maybe you had a parent who never shared their emotions with you or was really stunted in that way. And so that you didn't get an emotional education by modeling and co-regulation with them. So like, if you have, if you're sitting here listening to this being like, I'm not resilient or I don't do vulnerability or I don't, I don't, you know whatever that I can't do or I don't do, explore the roots of that belief because I bet you it's rooted in an earlier experience. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's, what's so touching with your work, my work, you know, working in this childhood experience so much, I would, I would go to say nearly everything. And I don't say that word lightly, nearly (laughs) everything in our adult experience, our knee jerk reflex reaction has roots in those first, you know, 18 years before you left home, nearly everything. Right
1: it's so powerful that's why that work that we do like we gotta reverse engineer stuff help the parents create that that early experience for the child that's a little healthier a little bit more open a little bit more safe to have all the feelings so that people aren't growing up and then cutting off parts of their emotional experience and and not knowing what to do when they're adults when those emotions are in their lives in their children's lives so it's like it really is an intergenerational transmission of trauma. Like, right. um, and we're part of that. We're part of that cycle and we can break that cycle by becoming a lot more aware of how our, our childhood stuff is showing up at our parenting mm-hmm. and not necessarily doing the exact opposite. Sometimes it means being in that middle space and saying my gut wants me to like run the complete opposite direction but sometimes that's not helpful either because we end up in a like a
0: polar extreme. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to hear your take on this too. So I feel like I mean, we, well, I don't feel like we are, we live in fast forwarded lives. I mean, the fact that mm-hmm. when we get up in the, in the day, the first 30 to 60 minutes of our day, we take in more information, uh, typically, uh, um, unless you're getting up and meditating or what have you, but we're <laughs> taking in more med- or information than like you know, Paul Ingalls did in a year, you know? And so we are living on fast forward compared to our ancestors. So when we are, when they were talking about, oh, I'm feeling this, I'm going to ponder this for three days. Maybe I'll take a week. I don't know. Maybe I'll have a discussion with this in two weeks. That's not our world today. And our kids especially are living on even faster forward than we were because Mm -hmm. I didn't have these little, you know, techno boxes. Boxes in my hands all the time when I was growing mm-hmm. up, like they do. And so they are running through these emotions, like water coming out of a faucet. And if they don't know how to deal with them, it just, they drown really, really easily compared to how it was, you know, way yes. back when, or even when I was a kid. Yes. And so that's another reason why, I mean, and you can speak to that too, um, why the work when they're n- now in helping them with emotions, emotions are a much bigger part of the story than they were back then. Yes. Yes.
1: And I think that, yes, the speed, the liability of emotions, like, yeah. you know, we, as a grown-up, you know, if I'm on my phone and I'm going through Instagram, <laughs> which I do definitely do, (laughs) I will feel, you know, 10 different emotions in like the scroll of like the span of a minute scrolling. Right. Yeah. And I am an adult with a fully formed frontal prefrontal cortex. And, you know, I have skills to regulate my emotions. I have skills to take perspective. I, so when I see something on Instagram, that's like, Ooh, that makes me feel a little bad about myself. I have the capacity to notice that I'm having that feeling check in with myself and say, does that feeling hold weight? Do I, do I, is that true? Or was that just kind of like a quick automatic thought because I saw something that made me feel not so great about myself. Do I feel good about myself overall? Like I can do all that work and I can do it kind of fast. Right. I can't always do it. Sometimes I'm like in a funk afterwards. I'm like, why am I in such a bad mood? And then I'm like, Oh, cause I yeah. just like, you know, compared myself to 10 people. And now I'm feeling kind of crappy. Yeah. But our kids don't have that structural resilience yet, right. right? That comes with brain development and maturity and lived experience and practice and a lot of intentional self-education, right? And we, of course, as parents want to support that, but we also have to have realistic developmental expectations of our kids. A 12-year-old girl who's scrolling on social media is not going to be able to have that level of introspection and self-compassion and reflective functioning and perspective taking that I just kind of described, no matter how much we support them, that's just a 12 year old brain isn't going to be able to do that much work that quickly. Those, that muscular, that musculature while there is not yet that strong. So we also have to really remember that like some stuff is just too too big for these kids. Right. And yet they're using it. And I'm not saying, they can't use it or they shouldn't use it. I'm, I I really approach tech and kids from a harm reduction model. Like it's there, it's happening. We need to create supports to have them feel like educated consumers of technology and, and educated users of technology, because we're not going to be able to, to remove, we, we cannot excise this. It's here. Um, so how do we do it as safely as possible? And Part of that is helping outside of those moments build resilience skills, build reflective functioning skills. Reflective functioning is our ability to notice what we are thinking in the moment and reflect on its impact on our emotions, our physical body. So it's sort of that ability to say, I just saw something on social media it made me compare myself to that other person that made me feel bad about myself. I noticed that when I feel bad about myself, I kind of want to curl up in a ball. My, my stomach kind of flips a little bit. I, my mood drops. I want to do less fun things. I kind of want to isolate. Like that's reflective noticing that having that narrative is reflective function. We want our kids to be able to notice those things because when they notice it, they could do something about it. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I mean, you just sitting here and talking about that. It's, um, like scrolling. it's crazy when you are scrolling and you know you're me by myself, I do it too. and but with my kids, they can scroll past a um, you know a, a death. Someone just died in a horrific accident. Oh look at that pretty dress. Oh, there's a party I wasn't invited to. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's really happy for Aunt Judy. I don't know. And all of these things in four seconds, right? Yep. And they go through all of these things and it becomes that they're paralyzed to the effects of it. And I mean, that is ubiquitous across humanity right now with these mm-hmm. with these phones, but helping our kids feel those, I love, you know, I love that reflective, uh, functioning because, well, how did that make you feel to not be invited to that? Cause that really sucks. You know, that, that hurts and, um, and allowing them to feel that way, allowing them to mourn whoever passed away in some, you know, terrible way or what's happening in the world right now. So yeah, slowing down a little bit and having Mm -hmm. them be able to, have those, but, or have those feelings, but that takes conversations with the parents. It takes a lot of conversations, um, which are a beautiful thing, but, um, okay. So speaking of, I want to ask you a little bit, you, uh, you like to help parents better understand their children by looking under their behavior for emotional communication or unmet need. Can you elaborate on that a little bit looking under the behaviors and unmet needs? Yeah. So the idea is like, okay, we behave, we, we all Do stuff, right?
1: Very rarely do we do stuff for no reason. And so, and typically the reason why we do stuff, in my opinion, is not, and I'm talking about like, I mean, we sometimes we have very conscious meditated behaviors, like I want to do this thing and I'm gonna do this thing. What I'm talking about is like when I especially with little kids, right? When little kids, like I have a four-year-old and a two and almost three-year-old, they they hit. (laughs) <laughs> they push each other. They I'm trying to get out of the house. They run away from me. <laughs> they do these things that um, sometimes they do them on purpose. But I would I really do believe that most kids do really problematic behaviors because they're dysregulated. Um, beca- and when I say dysregulated, I mean, their nervous system is in fight or flight. Their prefrontal cortex is offline. Their amygdala has pulled the fire alarm there. <laughs> nervous system is, is getting ready to run or fight to the death. Like these are our primitive, our like evolutionarily based threat responses. And when our kids are tantruming or, or, or becoming very aggressive or having these out of control behaviors, especially young kids, but also this can happen in teens. I mean, I've had tantrums and I'm 37. Right. Like um, we we all have dysregulated moments where we go into this, like really just, you know, out of control threat response. But our littlest kids do it all the time. And I work with a lot of parents, very young kids. That's a big area of, you know, of the population that I work with, parents who are like, my kids keep hitting or they're or they're tantruming all the time or they're throwing their food on the floor. Like, you know, they can't get them to listen or cooperate. And I, you know, a lot of the work I do with parents is understanding dysregulation and realizing that a lot of the behaviors that we are observing, all these dysregulated behaviors are really, you know, the tip of the iceberg. And really what's what we need to do is look underneath. That's why I say underneath the behavior to what is driving the dysregulation? What's what pulled that fire alarm for the kid? Um, which is a mindset shift because it's taking people out of thinking about children's behaviors as they're doing this on purpose. They're pushing my limits. They're testing my boundaries. They're they're looking for a fight. Um, they're manipulating me. Instead, we're looking at it as like, wow, this is like a volitional. My kid is really, they've they're no longer in control of their brain and their bodies because when we're in fight or flight, our frontal lobes are offline. So we're really not making choices. We're really in reflex mode. And so that's what I mean by going under the behaviors, trying to figure out like what is the 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 perception of threat that triggered this chain reaction. You know, there's there's a lot of people in this in my field who are doing work on this too, like Mona Delahook and Dan Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson, and like this is a lot of the work that I do stems from um, you know the 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 ideas of the regulated and dysregulated brain and body versus my child is doing this behavior on purpose and I have to punish them so that they learn not to make that choice again. It's a very different way of thinking about behaviors. It's really not about when we take that part of like, this is not volitional, our our feeling state changes, right? If I have the thought, my kid's doing this to manipulate me, I'm gonna get frustrated and angry. If I have the thought, oh, my child's out of control right now and they need my help to calm their body down. Well, my, my emotional response to that thought is very different. I lean in. I'm like, how can I help you? And I have a lot more empathy and compassion and I'm more calm. So that's, that's a lot of the work that I do. And I, the course that I have, The Science of Tantrums, really goes into like the neuropsychology of dysregulation, what's happening in your child's brain and body, when they're dysregulated, when they're having a tantrum or a meltdown. And then all the ways that we can kind of respond to that from this sort of, how do we share our calm with them instead of how do we try to change their behaviors?
0: Right. And so I'm such a nerd. I love, I have biology, psychology degrees. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, I want to know how you're thinking, but I also want to know like literally what's firing in that brain of yours. (laughs) You know, I love it. (laughs) And so I, yeah, I love that you have that in there, but I think that is, that is key to parenting. Um, when we can look at them and not think, I mean, the manipulation, especially because I work with, um, teens, right. So many parents Mm -hmm. think they are just being purposely manipulative and Mm -hmm. terrible human beings. And I've given up and they're 14 and I'm like, Oh no, no, no. You know? And, Mm -hmm. um, but understanding that, that there's, there's a story, there's a root there and we need to help them calm down. Uh, there's so much happening in their brain they're not only going through massive life developments during, you know, uh, late elementary, middle and high school, but their brains are literally changing too. You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's the ultimate build the parachute on the way down, you know, type thing. (laughs) And so I want to talk a little bit about those parallels that happen with brain development since we're uh, you went there and opened that box. I would love to. So with, even like uh, um, neonatal or or like fetal development, fetal development, toddler brain development, uh, and uh, teen brain development. It always it it's always you know starting at the back and going front, starting at the back, going yes. front. You know, yeah. and so. I find it fascinating. And if, if there's awareness as a parent of, Oh, their brain is changing again and we need to do this. I think Mm -hmm. it just brings so much more compassion to the table. So can you talk a little bit more about the, the nitty gritty of that brain development and those stages with toddlers and even teens? Yes. And it's funny. I always joke, but it's not, it's not
1: that funny because it's really kind of true that toddlers and teens kind of are very similar because they are both developmentally, their prefrontal cortexes are under construction heavily in that period of time. Yes. There's sort of like this massive burst of fr- prefrontal cortex development. and the prefrontal cortex is where is the part of our brain like right behind our forehead and it's responsible for the higher level thinking that makes us kind of like human, right? The thing that separates us from our, animal counterparts, right? It's where we, it's executive functioning skills. It's how we perspective take, problem solve, plan and sequence behaviors, inhibit impulse, right? There's a big parallel between toddlers and teens is that impulse control is under construction. So, Language, communication skills, all that stuff, emotion regulation skills, like all that stuff is housed in the prefrontal cortex. And so when that part of the brain is under construction, which developmentally happens in toddlerhood, it happens throughout life, right? The prefrontal cortex is not done being developed until we're about 24 to 26 years old, depending on if you're male or female. Males get it later. (laughs) Not shocking, right? But the there's a huge like like huge leap and like exponential growth that's happening in the toddler years. And there's another, and then there's sort of like a late, we call it latency period. There's like a, a slowing down of the speed with which the brain, the brain's always developing, right? Even grownups, we, our brain is plastic. We can create new neural pathways till the day we die, right? We could always learn new things, but the speed and the intensity of change that's happening. There's a big, big peak in, in toddlerhood, and then it sort of slows down. It never stops, but it just, this, the intensity slows down through like that middle, elementary, middle school age. And then you hit adolescence and that, that construction zone picks right back up. And now there's this new transformation from childhood to adulthood that's happening. So the brain is changing again to become it's more adult self and it even though we're trying to turn into adults with our brain, that construction really impacts the prefrontal cortex's ability to access those executive functioning skills. So we see way more risky behavior, difficulty with organization, difficulty with planning, difficulty with perspective taking, right? So egocentric. So mm. the sense of omnipotence, right? Like um, there's, it's, this is, kind of similar. Who am I talking about here? A four-year-old or a 14-year-old? It's hard to tell, right? Because they're really similar because their brains are under very similar um, changes.
0: And right there, I think is such a great checkpoint for parents because When your kid went to, you know, jump off of something when they were four, you would be like, no, 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 you can't do that. I, you know, I love you and, and (laughs) that's dangerous and everything. And when they go to do it at 14, you're like, you fool, you know, what are you doing? You should know better. Right. And having that same, uh, and I'm not saying talk to them like a four-year-old and not that, and they are grown and they have gone through 14 years of life now. And yes, they know more things, but still, like you were saying that is under construction. So helping them be there. I mean, there's a reason why childhood is 18 ish years, you know, um, in different cultures, it's somewhere else in the teens, but, uh, you know, and in some, some people stay home until they're 26, you know, it just right. depends on where you are, but in general, probably the average is about 18 years. And there's a reason for that. They need guidance. They need support. They need, um, someone to believe in them, uh, during that time. Um, I saw the other day, you know, we're going through this terrible epidemic of teen suicides and, uh, you. and. It's, it's really, really heartbreaking, but there was a study that was done and I apologize. I forget who um, put it out, but they said um, that people who had attempted suicide and, uh, and um, lived that the difference, they had large questionnaires, large studies. And the biggest difference was they needed one person, one person to just Mm. be able to see the potential in them Mm -hmm. and not, and you know we've we've ran into a lot of um, teens that are big you know, fill in the blank stars, you know, track stars You know this, but that is ambition driven. Do this, you got this, you know, that, but actually yes. believing in them and who they are as a person without just their talents running the show or driving the bus, yes. you know? Oh yes. And that is so huge. And as a family architect, which is what I call parents, we are, you know, building, designing, planning, the beginning of someone else's life we can either be that person or we can help them find that person. Um, and we don't, it, it doesn't always have to be us. in fact, there's different seasons and there's going to be different things coming in and out, but we can recognize that fact and know that they need to find that person because in some ways they're still a toddler, right. Um, and under, under construction, I love that, that phrase. I'm I'm definitely going to use that there under construction. So, um, Wow. This has been such an amazing talk today. Thank you so much for being here. I have uh, three pages of notes, so that's awesome. And, um, I, it is just such a treasure to talk to you always. You are a wealth of knowledge and your heart, um, is just out there to serve your own family and all of those people that you have been able to help throughout the years and in the future. So thank you for all the work that you do.
1: I so appreciate it. And thank you for having me. This is lovely.
0: Well, I know people are going to want to find you. So can you tell people where they might be able to find you? Yes, absolutely. So um, you can find me on Instagram,
1: Dr. Sarah Bren. And I have a podcast, Securely Attached. Nellie has been on it. She's graced (laughs) us with our presence and it was a wonderful episode. So you should check that out if you're a big Nellie fan as I am. (laughs) And I have, um, I have, parenting I have two courses um the authentic parent which is really about finding your confidence in your child's first year whether you're a first time or a second time or a third time parent I've had third time parents take it it's been great and then I have this new course the science of tantrums which is all about child's regulation and understanding what's happening in their brain and body so that we can help them move out of tantrums more effectively um so you can find all that on my website drsarabren.com and then I also, I see patients and I have a group practice in Pelham, New York. So if you're in New York and you want parenting support or child or adolescent therapy or maternal mental health support,
0: check us out at UpsureBren.com. Awesome. And I, I just have to say too, you were talking about first, second, and third time parents. Once you're a parent, it doesn't mean you know everything about parenting. I mean, you can every pregnancy, every time you are a parent, it's different. So don't put that pressure on yourself. And Dr. Bren is your girl. So go and check her out. So thank you so much. Um, Everybody, for listening, this was um, another just uh, amazing episode with uh, great guests on that. We can be sure that we are feeding you and your journey in parenthood. Everyone is different, every child is different. Um, So, we will be back next week with another great episode. Remember just to keep teaching, keep laughing, keep loving, and remember to keep showing up with intention during this 6,570 days that we have in this parenthood childhood journey. Uh, because they need you and i will talk to you soon thank you so much for listening today and i hope you were able to take something from our discussion that you can use to build the foundation of self-led leadership in your own family if you are a parent with children 17 or younger and especially those around nine and up i would love to extend an invitation to you to the best club in town The Family Architects Club is a private club where intentional parents go that want to love, support, connect or reconnect and really truly help guide their kids and teach them how to self-lead in discipline and leadership. This is an online community and you are welcome to it. Parenting is a project and you are the architect of this one. You plan, you design and oversee the construction of the beginning of someone else's life. And that's what goes into these first 6,570 days. And it will be the foundation for the rest of their lives. So come join the club. You can find your invitation on the front page of my website, nellyharden.com That is N-E-L-L-I-E-H-A-R-D-E-N dot com. Thank you again for being a part of this conversation today. And if something really resonated with you or if you have a question, please don't hesitate to connect with me. You can find me on Instagram at Nellie Harden. And lastly, if you loved the information, please, please leave a five-star review and a comment so more and more families can be impacted by harnessing the strength of these ideas and tools in their own families. So thank you so much. Happy building, you guys. And I'll see you next week.